Hello once again, listeners, and I'm delighted to welcome you to another episode of the Lancet Gastroenterology and Hepatology podcast in conversation with, I'm Hugh Thomas, the Deputy Editor. Featured in this episode is the SPAC-5 trial, which is a phase two randomized controlled feasibility trial that assesses four different approaches to borderline resectable pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma, sometimes referred to as PDAC. These four approaches comprise immediate surgery, neoadjuvant gemcitabine and cabocytobine, neoadjuvant volferinox, and neoadjuvant cabocytobine-based chemoradiotherapy. Joining me today to talk about the trial is Professor Paula Garnet, who is Professor of Surgery and Deputy Head of the Department of Molecular and Clinical Cancer Medicine at the University of Liverpool and Honorary Consultant Surgeon at the Royal Liverpool University Hospital. Professor Garnet, thank you very much for joining us and, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm really looking forward to talking about the paper. So, yeah, I mean, we're here to talk about the, the SPAC-5 trial and uh, we'll come on to the details and, and go through the results of that trial in a moment. But to give some background for everyone, I wonder if you can describe, thinking back to when the SPAC-5 trial was first conceived, what was the approach to treating borderline resectable PDAC and what evidence was available to sort these, support these approaches and, and the decision-making? Um, I think around the time we conceived it, it was about 2010 to 2012. Uh, and at that time, people with borderline receptible cancer, in fact, it was quite difficult to actually have an internationally accepted definition. Um, so there was often a lot of crossover between borderline receptible and locally advanced disease. Uh, but essentially, if we felt that somebody was borderline receptible due to um, vascular involvement, uh, essentially the, the standard of therapy in the UK at that time uh, was expiration and with a view to resection. Uh, so you had a sort of laparotomy, trial dissection, and in about 40 to 50% of cases, the tumour could be resected, but the rest of the cases couldn't be, and then they'd have to go and have palliative chemotherapy. And the types of treatment following resection would obviously be adjuvant therapy based on either the SPAC trials, uh, which at that time was single agent gemcitabine. But online in 2017 and 2018, we had the SPAC4 trial, uh, which showed that combination chemotherapy of gemcitabine plus capecitabine was um, useful for uh, improving survival. Uh, and then the French Prodige trial in 2018 showed that Volferinox was in, uh, important to improve survival after surgery. So so really, when the time you conceived the trial, the best treatment you could have for borderline receptive disease was to try and resect and then uh, complete six months adjuvant chemotherapy. But unfortunately, um, for over half of patients, that wasn't possible. And certainly, there are only very, very few places in the UK that were undertaking neoadjuvant therapy. So it wasn't standard at all in the UK practice at all. Um, so even considering it would be um, a major change to the patient pathway. Uh, and certainly we found that was quite challenging when, when implementing the study uh, with our colleagues um, in the UK and also in Germany. Yeah, and just leading on from that, I think, you know, it's fairly Fairly fair to say that SPAC-5 was an ambitious trial for the area and you're doing it over 16 centres in the UK and Germany in the end. What were the key design features of the trial and how did you really go about selecting and determining those, those regimens that you're comparing against the immediate surgery? Um, I think when we um, conceived the study design, first and foremost, we actually had to get a defined definition of borderline receptible disease um, because really, as I said, there was no international accepted standard that was um, used, universally used in clinical trials. So, so we had a meeting uh, of our colleagues and we had a surgical and radiology meeting where we 
agreed the definition for borderline resectable. So that was going to be our target population, people with borderline resectable disease based on central review of the CT scan with histological proof of pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma. Um, so we, needed, we felt it was important to establish that and that would be a sort of prospective review of everybody who was um, randomised and accepted into the study because we felt it was important to have that standard so that we could compare it with other trials of similar patients. Um, and then we thought what types of treatment should we have and what length of time should we treat them for prior to surgery and at that time the best uh, treatments that we could see in the advanced disease uh, were combination chemotherapy which I mentioned before so that was gemcitabine, capecitabine and fulfirinox so they seem to be the best combinations available at that time uh, for chemotherapy for patients with pancreas cancer uh, and then we um, felt that uh, there was some evidence about neoadjuvant radiotherapy uh, in other smaller studies. So we felt that we needed to include that as well. So we ended up with a forearm study of three different types of neoadjuvant therapies compared with immediate surgery. And we based the neoadjuvant radiotherapy regimen on the scallop trial. So that showed that um, radiotherapy with chemosensitizer of capecitabine uh, seemed to be as effective and have less toxicity than gemcitabine-based radiotherapy. So we had the chief investigator of the Scallop trial as part of um, our study as well, which was very useful in terms of quality control issues and quality assurance of the radiotherapy. So, so I think um, we felt it was important to have uh, the forearms. So we felt that was uh, complex, but we felt it was important to have a head-to-head -head comparison with surgery and have those different types so that we can have a, we could at least see a signal perhaps at the end of the trial, whether one or other or all were effective and hopefully uh, not too toxic. Uh, and then we felt it was quite challenging because um, you would need multiple sites to deliver the surgery and the radiotherapy and the chemotherapy. And there's also a question of equipoise for the surgeons, patients as well, because it wasn't part of standard uh, therapy in patients with pancreas cancer in the UK. So this was a major change to the pathway. So it was essential at the time that we... Um, uh, invited our colleagues, we had a lot of workshops uh, and uh, discussion groups to actually work through the study design. Eventually we came upon two cycles or eight, eight weeks of um, neoadjuvant therapy prior to surgery. This was quite a short course and we did discuss longer courses as well but we felt at this time there was not much evidence of uh, timing of this so we just had to go uh, for what we thought was reasonable uh, and a balance between delaying surgery and giving enough neoadjuvant therapy. So we came um, to the conclusion that eight weeks was probably going to be reasonable. And then I suppose the other study design features were quality assurance, really, because we had to make sure that this type of surgery is quite challenging because it's um, involving vascular structures. So you have to ensure that the standard of surgery is, is, is equal uh, and of a good standard between sites. So um, we made sure that we had good surgical quality assurance uh, and also radiotherapy assurance from the RTTQA, which is really fantastic. Their help was really good in, in designing the study and, 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 and sort of delivering it as well. And we also had patient input and in investigator input into the design uh, and also um, the study itself. But as I say, it was challenging because it was a change to practice. So we had to do a lot of visits. <laughs> it was quite a labour intensive trial. Um, so we were obviously visiting around the country uh, uh, on many occasions, shall we say, uh, just to keep up uh, recruitment because it was quite slow at the beginning. Because as I say, you had each site had to open up maybe more than one site 
site in order to deliver all the different treatments. So it was co- it was a sort of complex, multi-arm study. Um, but I think we learned a lot of e- lessons from it as well about engaging sites, engaging PIs, engaging patients and their carers. So I think on the whole, it was quite a, an informative way of doing it. So that was sort of the study design itself. And we had a quite a short... Uh, follow-up period because this was really essentially a feasibility study because we weren't sure whether this was going to be feasible in the UK. So um, because of that, our primary endpoints were feasibility endpoints. So it's a recruitment rate and it was resection rate. So could we recruit and randomise patients and could we resect them if we were able to operate on them? So those are the two main uh, primary endpoints. And that was really because we had very little evidence to base this on uh, in terms of randomised studies. And then we had a lot of efficacy secondary endpoints, which we were obviously really interested in. So because followers one year, we had one year survival, uh, we had quality of life, we had response rates and toxicity. Obviously, with this complex surgery, we're looking for surgical complications as well. So we had a number of secondary um, endpoints that were uh, mainly about efficacy. Uh, because we really wanted to find a signal. Because originally, as this as a feasibility study, this was designed to sort of um, provide information for a larger phase three study, whereby we could um, continue um, maybe one or two of these arms, comparing it with surgery, um, in, in a larger group of borderline receptible patients. But I guess we weren't expecting the dramatic results that we did get in the end. So um, that that was the original purpose of this trial. But um, I suspect over time that purpose has slightly changed. Sure, yes. I mean, so many lessons to be drawn from that, I think, and and obviously a huge amount to take in. And and obviously you mentioned those results. What were your results for those primary endpoints and and for those secondary endpoints that, uh, you know, those efficacy endpoints? Yeah, so basically the uh, the primary feasibility endpoints, uh, I think recruitment was challenging, shall we say. So we recruited 90 patients, but it was just over four years to do that, really. Um, and initially it was very slow, so we were very concerned at the beginning. Uh, and so, so what were the main issues then around, around recruitment rate that you think were affecting that? Yeah. So, well, I think uh, obviously initially it was the fact that it was a change in pathway. We did have a sort of breakdown of the reasons uh, why recruitment was slow or screening um, levels were quite um the levels were quite high in order to um, recruit people. Uh, and what we found was that um, a lot of patients initially wanted to go straight to surgery. So it's patient choice for a large number of patients. A lot of patients uh, also were not fit uh, for all the different arms. Um, so certain patients, we weren't able to get the jaundice um, to such a level that they could have something like fulfirinox. And also some of the surgeons themselves were keen to go straight to surgery for, for some of these patients as well. So um, it was certainly challenging. But as time went on, um, I think the concept became more acceptable to both patients and surgeons as well. So um, obviously, we still had the problems with um, sometimes patients who weren't fit for the treatments. But I think as time went on, uh, the actual concept became more acceptable, I think. Uh, and, and is that kind of acceptance of the concept due to findings from other trials as well? Or, or, or is that just based on, on experience in this in the study? I think there was more evidence coming on board during the lifetime of the study. So I think there are certain sites in the UK at that time that were practising new therapy anyway out with any trial and I think 
there were other sort of smaller studies that were coming on board. So I think there was a sort of a slight uh, increase in evidence. So that sort of perhaps reassured people. And again, I think initially a lot of it was logistical as well, because we had to open up multiple sites. You know, it was a forearm study involving different types of uh, intervention. So again, it was pretty complex. It's got the the curve of, uh, of, of recruitment coming up. And then on to your second primary endpoint. Oh, right. Sorry. Oh, I forgot to say from the uh, efficacy endpoints, um, apart from recruitment rate, the resection rate was about 68% uh, resection rate in immediate surgery and 55% in the combined neoadjuvant therapy group. So there was no difference, actually. We found there was no difference, which is quite interesting. So in terms of secondary outcome measures, we had the R0 resection rate. So that's the resection rate where uh, there is less than one millimetre between the tumour and the resection margin. Um, and we had quite low R0 resection rates. Uh, admittedly, they were higher in the in neoadjuvant therapy group, but on the whole, they were quite low. I, I suspect that we would expect that with the type of tumours that we had and the vascular involvements. So that's probably not unexpected. We had no 30-day mortality following surgery, which I thought was very encouraging. And then we came to the overall survival figures. So the overall survival for immediate surgery at one year was 39%. For the combined neoadjuvant therapy group, it was 76%. Uh, And then for the individual neoadjuvant therapy arms, um, probably the best arm was Folfurinox, which was 84% at one year. So it it was a huge... um, a huge improvement, shall we say, at one-year survival, which I have to say we weren't completely expecting. And also what made it quite unusual is because that was in despite the difference in um, resection rates. So the, the resection rate didn't seem to make a difference to their overall survival. So as we know, pancreas cancer is a systemic disease. So it does sort of um, propose the question that starting systemic therapy, possibly at an earlier stage, in the patient pathway may be beneficial in terms of survival for these patients. So we, we were quite um, uh, sort of shocked by that result because it was quite unexpected. And then we looked at safety at toxicity and really I think it was quite acceptable but we did notice that it was probably more toxicity in the Folfurinox arm which you'd expect you know because it's a combination chemotherapy and it is quite toxic so that's probably not ex- uh, unexpected I would say. And again we were quite happy that a large proportion of the patients who did have a resection and had had neoadjuvant therapy also went on to have adjuvant therapy as well. So it showed that you could complete the process and have a complete pathway treatment uh, despite having this addition of neoadjuvant therapy for the patient. So I think we were sort of very encouraged by that, really. Yeah, wonderful. I mean, given all these findings, what do you really think that the, that the kind of the lessons from SPAC-5 are for patients and, and how will that affect how might that affect management and, and kind of these pathways going forwards? Yeah. So I think, as I said at the time, this was conceived as a feasibility study and it was meant to lead on to a larger phase three study. I think what we found was because the survival differences were quite significant uh, compared to what we were expecting, even though it's a small study with short-term follow-up, I think they were quite striking. And if we put those together with other, the other neoadjuvant therapy trials that are... Um, have been completed during the lifetime of this trial, such as the Dutch Priapank study. Again, that showed um, on long-term analysis, um, improved survival for borderline receptable patients. So, and a more recent meta-analysis in this year, 2022, um, sorry, last year, 2022, showed that um, 
there's a survival advantage for people with borderline receptacle disease who have neoadjuvant therapy. So I think we have more and more evidence now of randomised trials that show that there is um, a survival advantage. And because of that, when we did a recent survey of the UK centres to see about um, follow-on studies in terms of neoadjuvant therapy, what we found, the vast majority of sites are using neoadjuvant therapy for borderline receptacle disease already. And what we found was that it would be not feasible at all to do a randomised study with an immediate surgery arm because it wouldn't be accepted by patients and it wouldn't be accepted by um, surgeons. So essentially, a follow-on study which would include an immediate surgery arm as a phase three study for this would not be possible in the UK or elsewhere. So I think even though this is a small feasibility study, we kind of answered our question already. And then going forward... I think uh, you would have to look at different types of neoadjuvant therapy, length of treatment and a more personalised approach. But I think because the sort of evidence for this has become much more in the recent years, something like the, the NICE guidelines, which came out in 2018 for pancreas cancer, you know, they might need um, a further review because of at the time they were conceived, that there really wasn't any good quality randomised studies. But now we've got at least seven uh, randomised studies uh, which they can use to perhaps inform the, the next iteration of the guidelines, I suspect. So I think it has not just SPAC-5, but other trials as well have sort of led, led to a change in practice. And also um, uh, COVID. <laughs> uh, the, during the time of COVID, where it wasn't possible for people to have their uh, pancreatic resection, uh, you would find that a lot of the sites were using neoadjuvant therapy. So that was quite an interesting um, pandemic-related event, shall we say. Um, and that seems to sort of um, continue to some extent. So I think in terms of the outcomes for SPAC-5, I think, you know, it has been practice changing in, in, in relation to all the other studies as well. Wonderful. And so I think you've probably touched a little bit on this already. Um, but just wondering then, in terms of research, what are the unanswered questions and where do we, where do we take this forwards to? Yeah, so it's obviously it's, you know, optimising the regimens and, and the timings, etc., even if you do that, you still will have, you know, 60% recurrence, etc., you know, um, post-operatively. So a, a more personalised approach might be helpful using molecular signatures to optimise treatment. So I'd probably just mention SPAC 6 and 7 trials um, from Heidelberg, uh, and they're going to use a molecular signature to identify where the patient should have either gemcitabine, capecitabine or fulfirinox. Um, and they're going to use that uh, neoadjuvant chemotherapy for locally advanced disease and for adjuvant therapy for people with receptable disease. So I think that that's probably going to be uh, a more refined way of improving outcomes for the patients. But again, they're all similar sort of concepts of improving neoadjuvant therapy regimens for patients. Fantastic. I mean, it's great to hear so much, uh, this kind of glut of studies in the last few years and, and really making a difference for, for patients and, and improving clinical care. Fantastic. First again, I thank you very much for taking us through the SPAC-5 study uh, and giving all, us all of those extra details as well. Uh, and thank you very much for your time today. Thank you very much. It's been lovely speaking to you, Hugh. <laughs> thank you. You can read the paper on the SPAC-5 trial online now at thelancet.com. Thank you to Professor Garnet, and thank you for listening to this episode of the Lancet Gastroenterology and Hepatology Podcast in conversation with. Remember, you can subscribe to In Conversation With wherever you usually get your podcasts. 